standing for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. The text will be on the screen as I read. Then I saw another mighty angel coming from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is God's word. Thanks, Please be seated. Well, you can see all the kids are being dismissed this time, so I think second grade and under are running away. from the frightful appearing or something like that. I'm uh, Jason Anderson. I think I met half of you. Uh, I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity City Church. I've been here since maybe March. We've been here since March, so we're glad to have been here these pa this past month. Uh, this morning we're turning our attention to Revelation 10 and 11. And as we heard Helen read that passage aloud. I hear it and I think, man, I'm not even going to tell you half of the answers to the questions you have. But that's okay. Just go talk to Brian tomorrow. Um, the point, though, of this sermon series isn't to answer all the little detailed questions. The point is to give us a bigger picture, theological kind of pi picture of what's happening. So you can hopefully come away from each sermon and kind of grasp, grasp something bigger than you might get when you're focusing on all the details. So this morning I want to think, to begin to paint the picture by thinking of the Bible's progressivism. Now when I say that, it's a little different than what you might think of progressivism. You might think of political progressivism. I think it's helpful for us to think through the idea of the name progressivism, political pro progressivism even, as we think through the Bible's progressivism. They are different. So at least in America we have this spectrum, don't we? There's progressive and conservative. It's a, it's a line. 
Are you willing, you want to change all the time or you want to just keep it all the same? All right, and I'm going to butcher all sides here, and so I hope everyone's upset at the end, but we're just painting a picture to understand the Bible. So, um, if we think of conservatism, right, in the end, again, this is butchering it because it's simplistic, is they're preserving a certain dogma. They want to preserve maybe something from 1776 or 1789 or 1865 or whatever date you want to pick, and all of them in between. On the opposite side of the spectrum, progressivism, there's this, the name implies that change is the order of the day. There's, progress, there's progression and we're making progress to something. Now the question we have is where is all this progress heading? Right, if a progressive government had its way forever, it's just, just a hypothetical experiment, where would we progress to? Is there a real goal? And I, I would assume most politicians could talk to you about some sort of goal. On the flip side, for those who want to conserve or preserve something, is there a principled goal aside from just preserving status quo? It's interesting to think of that spectrum there. But hopefully that paints a picture of pro progression. There's a, there should be a goal in mind if we're progressing, isn't there? And even, I think, if you're preserving something, there should be a for what? For what reason are we preserving something? And we can think of even now outside of po politics, churches. There's goals with churches. You look at a church's website and it says, this is our goal. It's usually a lot clearer than what a government has a goal. Hopefully. Turning to Revelation, we see that there is a biblical progress, progressivism, a progression. And what is it that, but that there's an end coming. Now up to Christ, there's this searching for Christ to come. But now, in this age of the church, we're making progress to the end. And Revelation is painting the picture of that progress. As I, a professor of mine used to always say, in his Canadian accent, which is almost American, we're making progress. God's making progress or progress to his goal. And what's the goal? Well, at least in our passage this morning, we see it in Revelation 11:15. The goal, the end goal is when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation doesn't tell us what our political persuasion should be, but it does tell us, teach us, the Christian posture to the world. We're to be enduring witnesses of Christ to the world through suffering, even to death, even to the point of death. And in that context, our God is making progress to the end of the world. And it's clear to John where the world is headed. He's preparing the world for Christ to come to judge the dead and to reward his servants and to rule forever. As someone said, thinking about Revelation here, if there's a final judgment, if there's that end coming, 
then there's a trajectory to history. There's progression in history. Without a final judgment, though, history's headed nowhere. And honestly, that would be pretty depressing. God's progress matters for how we live today. Let's pray as we consider these things. Our Father, we come to you this morning, and as we consider Revelation, we pray that you would give us hope. We pray that you would give us sober-mindedness as we consider the progress you are making to the end. Help us, Lord, to be patient, whether through trial or tribulation, whether through 80-degree summer days or 30-degree snowy days in April. Our Father, we pray that we would see your hand of work in all things, making all things new to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if you're going to go away, going to go away with something, I want you to go away with the passage's main point, at least how I'm going to say it is, the kingdom of God is descending. So how are you going to live? Heaven's coming down, so how are you going to live? Amy said, not my wife, said not to say heaven's coming down because it sounds like heaven came down in that weird song. But heaven's coming down. How are you going to live? That's the question. Now, let's turn to the passage. One of the ways the New Testament describes the life of the Christian is, is like a race. When you're running a race, there's a starting line and a finishing line. I used to run track, and I was terrible at it. You can imagine in the running of the race, the starting line of the faith is what Jesus did at the cross, and then us putting our faith in what Jesus did at the cross. And this work of Christ reverberates through and resonates through the rest of history. And it resonates through our Christian life, every Christian life, urging us to finish that race. So Christ lived his life. He taught. He preached the gospel of salvation from sin. He died. The curtain was torn in two. He was raised. He ascended into heaven. This reverberates through history. It's an earthquake every day as we remember what Christ has done and its effects on our lives. And the interesting thing is that there are hidden realities to what happened in history. The broken, open tombs, the earthquake, the temple veil torn in two. These proclaim, these proclaim the coming of the end of the age. They proclaim the hope of the resurrection that still is to come. And perhaps they're anticipating the end of the world. You think of other things that happened in the life of, of Jesus. There's John the Baptist who witnessed about Christ. And we see a lot of witnessing in the, in the Gospel of Revelation. Can we call it that? I like to call it that. In the Gospel of Revelation, John the Baptist witnessed. He testified. He martyred about Christ. And eventually he was put to death. And similarly, that testimony, the word testimony is the same. It's the word martyr. That's it, it's related in Greek. It reverber it, that testimony, his death and his testimony reverberates through history. 
John lived and died to testify about Christ. And as Christ increased, John the Baptist decreased. And this John the Baptist testimony reverberates as well throughout the lives of Christians throughout every age. All the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they move us as we consider the work of Christ to finish the race. And so we ought to have our eyes on the prize and the end as, as the Lord is making progress through history. The end when the worn-out world will be finished. Sin and death, sickness and sorrow will be put in the grave. And those who are in Christ will be made alive. They'll be raised out of the cemeteries and will live forever experiencing the fulfillment of our hope, life with God forever. Now this is the picture of Revelation 10 and 11. Even with all the imagery, that's at the end of the day what's happening. There's, there's trial, there's tribulation, but there's testimony, and there's anticipation that one day Christ again will come to rule forever. Beginning now in Revelation chapter 10, we get what some people call an interlude. It interrupts that flow of the seven trumpets. If you remember a few weeks back, Brian preached on six trumpets. Well, chapter 8 and 9, there's these six trumpets. And at, at the end, there's a, we, we kind of feel this invitation. The, the man, mankind should repent because of the trials, the tribulations, the suffering. And yet they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. There's this invitation, and they did not re respond to the invitation to repent. But then we don't see the final seventh trumpet until chapter 11, verse 15, where it seems to me that Christ descends and begins an eternal rule. So we have to ask, as we're reading Revelation, what in the world happens in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet? What's John trying to do? What is he preaching to us? At chapter 10, the first thing we see is what seems like a throne of God descending. Now, things aren't all that clear, which I guess is par for the course for Revelation, but we see this mighty angel descending. Who is the mighty angel? I can't decide if it's Christ or a messen his messenger. I don't think we're supposed to or need to decide necessarily, but definitely it's cloudy. There's a rainbow, just like there's a bow, rainbow around the throne of God in earlier on. It's like the messenger that God sent before Israel in the wilderness. It's like John the Baptist who went before Christ in the wilderness. It's, it's like Ezekiel's throne descending in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. There's all these imagery that's, that's brought to fulfillment in chapter 10 here. Whatever the angel is, it's accompanied by the Lord of glory. And it's different from Revelation 4 and 5. Because in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we enter into the throne room, and it's just God's throne room. But here, in chapter 10, the throne room can't stay in heaven. 
It's got to come down. Get this little picture of heaven coming down here in chapter 10. And John, he's invited to prophesy about it. At first, he hears the voice of an angel, and the voice sounds like seven thunders. But he says, yeah, John, don't do that. Don't prophesy what I just said. Instead, you've got to ingest the scroll. You've got to digest it. You've got to meditate on these words before you prophesy it. You've got to consider both the sweet and the bitter. So we see in verse 9. To me, it seems potentially that like the, the, th- the seven thunders are related to what John prophesies. Why is this message sweet? Well, it's sweet because it's about salvation. Can we just celebrate Easter last week? Can we just rejoice in the salvation of God? That's why we sing praise the song here every week. We don't just sing dirges. I don't know if we've ever sung a dirge here. We celebrate when we see God's mark and seal of salvation on a person as they're, as they're being baptized. But it's also bitter because not everybody repents, like we saw in chapter 9. They don't repent of their murderies, their sorceries, their sexual immorality or theft. And for those who don't repent, judgment's waiting. Now, judgment doesn't happen here. Judgment happens in our passage at the end of chapter 11. This is a sobering thing for John. It ought to be a sobering thing for us too, it ought to temper our aspirations. The way we live in the world, as we hear chapter 10, as we hear chapter 11, as we hear the book of Revelation, is that we, we ought to be sober-minded, remembering the sweetness. I love sugar. But there's even... <laughs> I like... I've, I've eaten a lot of sugar this week. There's... But there's an even more, a better sweetness in the life that's in Christ. We remember that. But also we remember the bitterness of those who reject his word. And here John is invited, prophesy again. Keep prophesying. Keep proclaiming. Keep telling the story of Christ again. And we too are called similarly to making disciples of all nations. Now, as we've read through the book of Revelation from here, one of the questions we've got to ask is, what's the prophecy that John is regurgitating here? He's ingested it, he's digested it, and now he's throwing it up. Where does it begin? Where does it end? I have no clue. Don't ask me. It's not clear, but it seems like it's possible that it begins right at chapter 11, verse 1. So he says, you got to prophesy, John? He says, okay, I'm going to prophesy. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as you read chapter 11, and you can go do this at home after church today, there's this cascading of imagery. This is just the best thing about John and actually most of the Bible. There's... Like the rest of the book, we, we got this gooseberry falls of imagery that goes one right after the other, right after the other waterfall. In some writing, some English professor thought it good to say, don't use mixed metaphors. They're bad. John says, no, no, no. I'm your English professor, and you need to use tons of mixed metaphors. 
If he was your English teacher, he'd mark you down for not mixing your metaphors. It's probably why I got F's and D's in English. So John gets this mixed imagery, measuring rod. And then he has these two witnesses who are also olive trees, who are also lampstands, right? You have these imagery, but it all crashes together in one big, beautiful explosion that teaches us something. So what, what does he mean? There's this measuring rod. Okay, he's got to measure a temple. In the Old Testament, God had Ezekiel measure a temple. Someone said, Ezekiel records the measurements so that the people of Israel would be ashamed of their sins. Measuring in the Old Testament sometimes has to do with this is the way God has it and this is the way you are. You see that in Amos too. But also sometimes measuring means this is what God is going to preserve. Measure the temple but the outer courts in Revelation here, that's left for destruction. But God's going to preserve his temple. And who is his temple but his people? God's temple, his people, they're going to endure. And we see these, again, this mixed imagery, these two olive trees, these two lampstands, these two witnesses, who even though they die, they will be raised to new life. They're going to be measured. They're going to be preserved. I wonder if what he's doing with these two witnesses is he's symbolizing faithful people of God. Now God says in verse 3 of chapter 11, I'll grant authority, think of, think of Matthew 28 here, isn't that interesting? I'll grant authority to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And these two olive trees, they're, and these lampstands, they're echoed throughout the whole of scriptures. I mean, even within the book of Revelation, we have lampstands that are the churches, the seven stereotypical churches of God in chapters 2 and 3. But even righteous Noah... He was a preacher of righteousness, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2. We have Abraham who left pagan lands to go to the promised land all the way to John the Baptist, who was a faithful witness, even to the point of becoming a martyr. James the Just, old knobby knees, again, who was a faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the point of death. In Revelation, this word witness is important. This word witness is one that we ought to grasp and carry with us. The Greek word, like I said, is where we get the word martyr. Nowadays, a martyr is usually a person who has been a faithful witness to the point of death. And John mentions that these, those who have given their lives to witness Christ are going to be rewarded. They'll inherit eternal life. But this is not just the burden of those who give up their lives. This is the burden of every Christian to bear witness about Christ wherever He's placed us. It's of every member of the people of God in every age. 
to preach Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected, Him glorified. This is our sweet Jesus. These trees represent the people of God that are fed by the fuel of God's Word, burning the lamp of truth to the world. That multi-layered imagery paints a fuller picture than I could ever retell. The point is this. The church is to be sober-minded as their faithful witnesses of God's Word in the world. And there's this curious thing that we, the church, have learned to pursue, as, I think, as Americans, but maybe it's probably just across the history of the world. Sometimes we pursue relevance for its own sake. Sometimes we pursue acceptance. I think maybe these aren't necessarily bad in certain contexts, but I think it would be good for us to take a quieter path, a, a path of humility that calls us to faithful witnessing whether or not we're accepted, whether or not we are fully relevant. We're called to be faithful witnesses where God has placed us. And for a guy like Paul, I think the example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is really great for us. Cain's, what does he say? For though I am free to all, he could do whatever he wanted. I made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew I've become as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law... I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you, know not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. You see, the posture is one that we're called to as one of a steward, running to finish the race, steward of the gospel of God, to be a testimony to the people that we run into. We have this precious thing that demands to be shared. If you had an unlimited supply of water in the desert, wouldn't you share it with those who are in need? If you had an oasis of tropical paradise in the middle of Minnesota in April, wouldn't you want to invite others in? I always take as a cautionary tale the church in the first few centuries. Now everyone, maybe, you know of famously of the church in the Roman Empire. By 325, it had grown to be huge, where even it was an accepted religion and it was permitted and encouraged. But across the border, similar things happened. In the Persian Empire, grew at, the church grew at the similar sort of pace. However, as soon as 325, when Constantine legalized Christianity, not 325, sorry, a little earlier than that, but what happened? In Persia, Christians became the enemy. 
In Persia, Christians were counted as enemies of the Persian Empire because they supported the Roman religion. And the Persian church essentially disappeared. You know, sometimes we think, oh, if we're just faithful enough, we can grow the church enough so that we can, you know, be like the Roman church. But what if at the end of the day, God calls us to be the Persian church? The takeaway is that the progress of church history doesn't always look the way we wish it were. It's not always happy. It's actually sometimes very hard. Sometimes we may be faithful witnesses, and yet it will look like it all came nothing. We're not always going to be culturally even keel with the world around us, but we are to stand as faithful witnesses of the gospel of Christ in the world to the point of death, just like these two witnesses in Revelation 11. Remember, salvation in Christ gives us what really matters. We may die, but we will rise one day, immortal with Christ, like those trees, like those lampstands, like those witnesses who rise on the third day. After all this interlude, in chapter 10 and first half of 11, we now come to the seventh trumpet. Here we see another picture of the end of the world. John's going around and around in circles, is my, my thought, in, a, in good Hebraic fashion. That's how Hebrews talk. They just tell the story 20 times. That's maybe like my grandpa, too. He tells stories and tells the story again and tells the story again multiple times from different vantage points so that we, the listener, get it. In here, what do we get? Once all these things happen, once there's these plagues of new Egypt in chapter 9 and 8, once there's this prophesying, once there's this witness of the people of God, the rule of Christ will come down to earth. Heaven will come down. The division between God and man will be broken down and Christ will reign forever and ever. That temple veil that was torn in two at Christ's crucifixion will be brought to fulfillment when Christ comes down. Throughout all history, the nations raged. Chapter 11, verse 18. They raged against the Lord and His anointed one. Psalm 2. But even the chosen people did that. Israel, His people, raged against Christ, the King, the Anointed One. But when Christ's throne comes down and is firmly planted on the recreated earth, those who oppose Him, both Jew and Gentile, will weep and cry and mourn at the rumbling and thunder and glory of the Lord. <laughs> Where does this leave us? This is kind of a whoa passage. I feel like every passage in Revelation is this way, but whoa. Where does this leave us? In, I think one, one place it leaves us is similar to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. 
In Exodus chapter 19, Israel is supposed to get ready to meet the Lord. After three days, they're going to meet the Lord. And after all the mighty works that God did in Egypt, after bringing them out of Egypt to Sinai, providing them heavenly food, they got to prepare to meet their God. And it, it is not a light thing. It's a heavy thing. And for you to do it by yourself, it's a crushing thing. But it's something that we can do right now. And it's something that we can do not of our own selves, but of, through the power of God's Spirit in you. And it, it's the same call that the, the gospel call. What is preparation but turning from your sins and putting your faith on Christ, falling on Him. He is the one who bore the weight of the cross. He's the one who finished the work of the cross. He carried the weight of judgment. See, the song in chapter 11, verses 17 18, it's not just giving thanks to God. It's not just the saints giving thanks to God or the 24 elders. It's, they're, also giving, they're also giving this warning the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the dead, the time for the dead to be judged. It's a fearful thing. The world is progressing to the end. Putting your faith in Christ relieves the wrath of God to come. Our reward is a reward freely given by God to those who look to Him in enduring faith. And these are astonishing verses in chapter 17 and 18 to chapter 11. The, this song is it's not one of those glorious revelation songs. You know, we always sing, Worthy is the Lamb. It's a great song. We don't always sing it, but sometimes we sing it. This is a sober-minded song that we ought to be, that reminds us that we ought to be found in Christ. Let me read it. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The coming of Christ is both a time of reward and judgment. It's one of those kinds of songs that you wonder if we ought to sometimes sing just to temper our hopes a little, to, to challenge our hopes a little bit, to sing such sobering words along with the elders in heaven chastens us to be clear-eyed about us pursuing the prize as we seek to finish the race. And for those who are in Christ or are baptized into His name, although there's bitterness in that song, there's a sweetness that will linger beyond the bitter judgment. And so this morning, our passage calls us to faithfulness, steady faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we're humbled by these words, and we ask that you would 
challenge us and empower us to remain faithful. We thank you that Christ was and is and will ever be the faithful one that we can look to. We pray in Jesus' name.